You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. Welcome to the first episode of Control Loop, our show about industrial cybersecurity news, strategies, and learning. We've partnered with the OT cybersecurity experts at Dragos to bring you this show every two weeks. Enjoy. June 1st, 2022, and you're listening to Control Loop. I'm Dave Bittner. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, continuing expectations of escalation in cyberspace during Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine, Russian threat actors appear to be preparing attacks against industrial control systems, proof-of-concept exploits for Bluetooth low-energy systems, CISA and international partners recommend best practices, and they're relevant to OT as well as IT, Activists claim they've counted coup against Russian ground surveillance robots. DDoS has potential battle space preparation. A new wiper loader has been reported. And the Turla threat actors found conducting reconnaissance in Estonian and Austrian government networks. I speak with Rob Lee about his plans to give back to the OT community, the big idea behind this show, and his candid thoughts about the pipe dream malware and its creators. And later in the Learning Lab, Mark Urban and Jackson Evans-Davies teach us about the fundamentals of network security for operational technology. Microsoft President Brad Smith, speaking in London at the Microsoft InVision conference, Renewed calls for laws of conflict in cyberspace, InfoSecurity magazine reports. The rules he envisions are essentially transpositions of traditional jus and bello considerations, proportionality, discrimination, and the avoidance of perfidy. They're nonetheless sound for being familiar. Smith sees the hybrid war in Ukraine as having lent new urgency to the development of international norms. The cyber phases of Russia's hybrid war have shown some correlation with kinetic operations, but less than many had expected. PC Mag describes the ways in which cyber operations appear to have been conducted without close coordination with conventional forces. Some of the cyber phases of Russia's war have shown an interest in targeting industrial systems, even if the widespread and devastating attacks against infrastructure many predicted have not yet materialized. For example, there are strong indications that a threat actor has targeted industrial systems in Ukraine, and circumstantial evidence points to Russia. The U.S. government hasn't made that attribution, but several security companies have. While Dragos doesn't assign attribution to threat actor groups, it did report the discovery of an ICS-focused attack toolkit designed with the energy sector and particularly liquefied natural gas facilities as their targets. Dragos named the attack kit Pipe Dream and the threat actor group Chernovite. The unusually large number of industrial control system advisories the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has released recently seems a partial response to this recently discovered threat. In mid-April, CISA warned that certain advanced persistent threat actors have exhibited the capability to gain full system access to multiple industrial control system 
and supervisory control and data acquisition devices using custom-made tools. The vulnerable systems include at least Schneider Electric Programmable Logic Controllers, Omron Sysmac Nex PLCs, and Open Platform Communications Unified Architecture Servers. The advisory recommends familiar best practices for protecting ICS SCADA systems and explains the threat actor's tools as follows. The APT actors have developed custom-made tools for targeting ICS and SCADA devices. The tools enable them to scan for, compromise, and control affected devices once they've established initial access to the operational technology network. Additionally, the actors can compromise Windows-based engineering workstations, which may be present in information technology or OT environments, using an exploit that compromises an ASROC motherboard driver with known vulnerabilities. By compromising and maintaining full-system access to ICS SCADA devices, APT actors could elevate privileges, move laterally within an OT environment, and disrupt critical devices or functions. The immediate actions CISA recommends are to implement multi-factor authentication, change system passwords, especially any default passwords, and use a properly installed continuous OT monitoring solution to log and alert on malicious indicators and behaviors. The Washington Post reports expert consensus that the energy sector, especially liquefied natural gas facilities, are the tool's most likely targets. While CISA's advisory called out specific products and merely suggested that others might be vulnerable, Dragos is explicit in its assessment of Chernovite's pipe dream that other systems are at risk. Dragos says, The tooling may be used to target and attack controllers from hundreds of additional vendors. Pipe dream can target a variety of PLCs in multiple verticals due to its versatility. That versatility has been observed elsewhere. Wired quotes sources at Dragos to the effect that Pipe Dream is like a Swiss Army knife with a huge number of pieces to it. It's equally capable of collection, compromise, disruption, and destruction of industrial systems. Two of the points Dragos makes illustrate this versatility. They say, Chernovite can manipulate the speed and torque of Omron servo motors used in many industrial applications and whose manipulation could cause disruption or destruction of industrial processes, leading to potential loss-of-life scenarios. Pipe Dream's Windows-related components facilitate host reconnaissance, command and control, lateral tool transfer, and the deployment of unsigned rootkits. The warnings about this threat to control systems are forward-looking, as the tools don't appear to have been used yet. On May 7, 2021, Darkside ransomware operators gained access to a VPN at Colonial Pipeline, a major energy supplier to the eastern United States. The gang succeeded in encrypting data and disrupting Colonial's ability to track the flow of product through its pipelines. Pipeline safety wasn't compromised, and Colonial was able to restore its systems within a matter of days. Looking back a year later, Utility Dive reviews some of the lessons learned from the incident— The attack showed the effect that an attack on business systems can have on industrial processes, even when there's no direct interference with the OT systems proper. And while modernization of OT systems has produced efficiencies and economies, it's also opened up attack surfaces that were hitherto unknown in older, legacy, air-gapped analog control systems. The response to the incident in both public and private sectors 
has been on the whole a positive one, marked by greater cooperation, by more sharing of threat intelligence, and of a heightened awareness of the importance of public-private cooperation. Cooperation in cybersecurity was also a theme at this year's meetings of the World Economic Forum in Davos. CISA Director Jen Easterly expressed high expectations at Davos. She tweeted, Cyber is the ultimate borderless space, a global challenge that mandates global solutions. Looking forward to this week at WEF22 Davos to discuss the importance of global operational collaboration among government and industry partners for a more secure and resilient cyberspace. Her expectations were not disappointed. A prominent feature of this year's proceedings was the circulation and widespread adoption of the Cyber Resilience Pledge, a resolution that involves not only a commitment to greater resilience, but also a commitment to placing security outside the bounds of competition. The pledge is expected to have a positive effect on organizations, from the operator levels to the boardroom. The World Economic Forum explained the importance of the pledge, which committed major representatives of the energy sector to the pursuit of greater resilience. The WEF said, For the first time, 18 global organizations from the oil and gas ecosystem are championing a unified approach to mitigating growing cyber risks and pledging to promote cyber resilience. The global cost of cybercrime is expected to reach $10.5 trillion by the year 2025. The threat of infrastructure breakdown due to a cyber attack is the top personal concern for cyber leaders. The pledge begins with oil and gas, but the World Economic Forum hopes to see comparable resolutions and attendant action from other economic sectors. The Forum's Global Cybersecurity Outlook 2022 provides a template those other sectors can use as they advance their own resilience. NCC Group researchers have demonstrated that Bluetooth low-energy systems are vulnerable to link-layer relay attack. The news has been generally reported with headlines that point out that crooks could now open and start your Tesla without so much as a buy-your-leave, but the problem is more widespread than that. BLE is, as NCC Group explains, the standard protocol used for sharing data between devices that has been adopted by companies for proximity authentication to unlock millions of vehicles, residential smart locks, commercial building access control systems, smartphones, smartwatches, laptops, and more. It's not the kind of problem that can be resolved with a patch. Rather, NCC Group argues, it's the kind of issue that arises when technologies are extended beyond their intended purposes. And BLE, they say, was never designed for use in industrial infrastructure. The researchers offer three recommendations, two for manufacturers, one for users— They say manufacturers can reduce risk by disabling proximity key functionality when the user's phone or key fob has been stationary for a while, based on the accelerometer. They say system makers should give customers the option of providing a second factor for authentication or user presence attestation, such as tapping an unlock button in an app on the phone. And users of affected products should disable passive unlock functionality that does not require explicit user approval or disable Bluetooth on mobile devices when it's not needed. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and its partners in Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom recently issued Alert AA22-137A, 
weak security controls and practices routinely exploited for initial access. The alert describes common weak security controls, poor configurations, and poor security practices that are used for initial access, and it recommends particular attention to seven best practices. These are relevant to industrial control systems as much as they are to IT systems generally considered. They include control access, harden credentials, establish centralized log management, use antivirus solutions, employ detection tools, operate services exposed on Internet-accessible hosts with secure configurations, and keep software updated. The ratings service Fitch notes the significance of OT security to utilities' credit and ESG ratings. It sees an attack on OT systems as likelier to be more consequential than a comparable attack on IT systems. Attacks on the power, water, and sewer sectors have risen, and so has the interconnection between their OT and IT systems. Utilities can no longer rely on the traditional segregation of OT from outside access. The loss of legacy air gaps and other separations has proceeded apace as obsolescent systems are replaced with newer networked controls, and the ratings agencies are putting utilities on notice that their adoption of best practices will be a matter of interest. The Daily Dot reports that a hacktivist group, CaucusNet, says it successfully compromised Trial Patrol 4.0 unmanned ground video surveillance systems, hashtagging OpRussia and GloryUkraine, CaucusNet's Twitter feed crowed, We hacked the patrol robots of the Russian company SMP Robotics. Now we control the robotics robots all over the world. We broadcasted the anthem of Ukraine and the Georgian song 300 on all the robots on May 9th. Trial patrol robots have been sold in many countries, but CaucusNet claimed in particular that they'd hacked the systems at Moscow's Sheremetyevo International Airport. The airport did not confirm any incident to the Daily Dot, saying only, Sheremetyevo International Airport does not confirm the fact of hacker hacking of the security system. Like most hacktivism, this amounts to a nuisance, and like most hacktivist claims, this one should be received with open-minded skepticism. An Iranian group has claimed responsibility for a distributed denial-of-service attack that interfered with the Port of London Authority's website, The authority acknowledged the incident but said that operational systems were unaffected. The group that said it was behind the attack, the Al-Tariya team, is a nominally hacktivist group, Hakreed says, that operates under the direction of the Iranian government. While the incident affected apparently only a public-facing website, not port systems involved with scheduling, material handling, or intermodal transfer, such incidents serve as indicators of adversary interest, and can also be used as misdirection for more disruptive or destructive attacks. The GRU's Sandworm Group, ESET reports, has deployed a new version of its ArguePatch loader. ArguePatch had seen previous use in both Indestroyer and Caddywiper attacks against Ukrainian targets. According to ESET, the new variant of ArguePatch, named so by the Computer Emergency Response Team of Ukraine and detected by ESET products as win32agent.aegy, now includes a feature to execute the next stage of an attack at a specified time. This bypasses the need for setting up a scheduled task in Windows and is likely intended to help the attackers stay under the radar. 
bleeping computer reports that the Russian threat actor Turla, also known as Snake or Venomous Bear, and associated with the FSB, has staged typo-squatting domains for use against Austrian and Estonian targets. The activity so far represents a cyber-reconnaissance phase of battle-space preparation. It is, as the Sequoia researchers who discovered it say, a phishing campaign. They say, Sequoia.io threat and detection research team have expanded the search on Russian-linked Turla's infrastructures from a Google's tag blog post. It exposes a reconnaissance and espionage campaign from the Turla instruction set against the Baltic Defense College, the Austrian Economic Chamber, which has a role in government decision-making such as economic sanctions, and NATO's e-learning platform JDAL, Joint Advanced Distributed Learning, pointing to Russian intelligence interest for defense sector in Eastern Europe and for topics related to the economic sanctions against the Russian Federation. And finally, this week, OT cybersecurity practitioners will converge on Orlando for the SANS ICS Summit. The conference is timely, coming as it does during a period of both heightened risk and heightened awareness of OT threats. The summit will feature training, expert presentations, and opportunities for professional networking. Stay tuned for reporting from the conference. And it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, I am excited to say that uh, we are heading off on a collaborative project here, the Control Loop Podcast, uh, sponsored by Dragos. And you all are, of course, uh, heading up large parts of this effort. Um, Let's start with some basics here. Why this? Why now? Yeah, so uh, good to collaborate with you. I feel like we've been in (laughs) orbit with each other for a while, so it's good to um, put a ring on it, as Beyonce would say. Uh, So uh, uh, when I look at why now the reality is ot security has become such a main topic now like it is truly a global up from executives on down to practitioners discussion it's not just this little community that we've been you know one you know a, a decade ago we could all sit around the fire uh, literally at a conference and know everybody around us now it's much bigger and which is awesome but with that comes a lot of information overload and there is a lot of good guidance getting out there, and there's a lot of bad guidance, and there's also just too much information sometimes for anybody to reasonably consume when you're busy day to day. So why now? Because there's that plethora of information we can synthesize down. Here is the things that you need to be aware of. What we're hoping to accomplish with it is exactly that. I'd like to make the podcast kind of two things, and that's what you and I have talked about for a while. The first thing is kind of the news capturing of, of all the different stuff out there, of all the new papers, of all the new research, of all the new news bites. What's your 15-minute or so digest of this? And, and just make this accessible to people. I mean, again, we're all overly busy. Just to be able to have audio for a commute or even just preparing around the house for the, for the morning, um, to be able to synthesize all the information, that's a good service to provide to people. So that that's part of it. The second part is we are welcoming in a significant increase of percentage of professionals into the OT community versus what's there today. In other words, you onboard 500 new people into InfoSec, 
doesn't put a dent in the size of InfoSec. You onboard 500 new people into OT security, that's a significant contribution to the percentage of the current state of the, the community. And, mm-hmm. and so we need to have a forum of source to kind of like onboard them and make sure that they are getting some basic concepts and understanding. So the second half of the control loop podcast, if you will, is meant to just be a very educational, hey, here's how a control loop works. Hey, here's what uh, a gas turbine is and where you might find them and what they do. Hey, here's why OT is different than IT. So just have the kind of these educational things. And I think as we've talked, the idea is to launch each episode in its full, but to take that second half of the episode and create a library of content for people that can come back and just up-level their knowledge of of ICS security. Who's the target audience here? I mean, obviously, we want folks within OT security to listen, but it strikes me like there's a lot here for folks who are outside of that specific community as well. Yeah, I I think the first half um, will be kind of an everybody thing. And I I hate to say it that way, but it really is. There's nobody out there that's not interested in what's happening in in our infrastructure security and kind of being up to date with the news. And and if you're trying to keep up to date with everything, you can't. But a 15 to 30 minute digest of here's the stuff you need to know, um, literally you'll have not only CSOs and executives and practitioners and all that, but you're going to have bankers and financial analysts and market analysts and everybody else trying to keep up to date. So I I think it's going to be a lot wider than people realize in that first part. That second part will be more practitioner focused. Um, that will be where you've got the maybe the CSO who's trying to get more familiar with what programs are about to roll out, um, but definitely IT security professionals trying to onboard into operations. Like I think that'll be the core segment um, or core audience for that portion of the, the show. All right. Well. I want to touch base with you today about uh, everything going on with PipeDream, this ICS-focused malware that you and your colleagues have uh, had a hand in the discovery of. But I think there's a lot to the story here. Where's a good place to start? Yeah, I'll just give a background for folks to say that when you look at industrial control system-focused attacks, most of what we worry about on a a day-to-day basis is the abuse of native functionality. It's not about some malware. It's not about some vulnerability. Actually, vulnerabilities tend to be a very system-based view of the world. And in the world of industrial, it's systems of systems and physics. So it's less about what can you do to one system. It's much more about, do you know how to operate a circuit breaker? Do you know how to operate a gas turbine? Do you know how to operate these different systems of systems that we have? And if so, you can abuse that functionality to do disruptive effects. But every now and then, you actually get ICS-focused malware. And they, they largely so far have come in kind of two flavors. One is access. Uh, Black Energy 2 is a great example of that. It had exploits for internet-facing, human-machine interfaces, basically being able to get access to these industrial environments. It in of itself couldn't disrupt or destroy anything, but it could help you get access. Um, but then you also have the disruptive and destructive type capabilities, right? We've had Stuxnet, we had Crash Overrider and Destroyer, there's Indestroyer 2, Trisis. These ones are, are deployed to do something disruptive or destructive. And across all of those cases and across all the time that we have, there's only been six publicly known ICS malware tool sets. And most of them 
are really victim specific and they're really not mm. going to use it somewhere else. The playbook that they've now shown, the trade craft that they've shown can be picked up by other people, but you're not just going to drop ship it into another environment. Trisis, as an example, worked against that petrochemical environment with that safety system. The things they exposed, anybody can now copy their playbook, but you're not going to see Trisis in its current form deployed somewhere else. And that brings us to Pipe Dream. So Pipe Dream is in my opinion, I hate this whole like, who's the best, you know, what's the most sophisticated malware? I don't like that measuring contest crap. It doesn't matter. But what we can candidly say is Pipe Dream is the most flexible of the ICS capabilities we've seen. So anything new, right, the seventh ICS malware framework is going to be big news anyways. But the fact that it can go against such a wide variety of industries and equipment makes it particularly dangerous. And What's probably most interesting to people around the world is we were able to get this information out to people and analyze it before the adversary employed it on its target. It's not saying they haven't deployed it anywhere in the world. It's not like it's not out there somewhere, but it wasn't employed against their actual targets. And and I'll pause there for a second, but in our view, in our assessment, this was a capability designed to be disruptive, if not destructive, against a set of initial targets and then capabilities beyond that. What I mean by that is this looks like they were going to deploy it against US-based energy assets, um, specifically in the liquid natural gas uh, space, um, both electric and gas community. I, I mean, I, I, I honestly think that they were going to use this. And, I, and when you talk about attacks on US infrastructure in a reliable way, I mean, that's... That's something, there's many people out there that were like, oh, we're not going to get attacked, we're not at war, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, the adversary gets a vote in that. you know. And, and this was very, very bold and brazen. So we're fortunate we found it beforehand, but there's no fix to it. It's not like there's a vulnerability they're exploiting. It's not like there's something that you can just go patch and fix. They're doing all the things we've been warning about for years, using Modbus TCP, a very common ICS protocol, using OPC, a very common ICS protocol, exploiting... Codasys functionality, which is software and just hundreds of different controllers out there. So it's one of those capabilities that if I was building an ICS security program from scratch and you just modeled out this scenario and protected yourself against it from protection, detection, and response mechanisms, you would have a world-class program. Like This is a very capable framework. I think there's been a lot of attention to the fact that your team and some other teams, uh, folks at Mandiant as well as your team at, at Dragos, were proactive on this. Were able to, as you mentioned, you know, have the detection before it was deployed. You know, you went so far as to take the stage and and kind of give these threat actors, uh, you know, a, a bit of the riot act uh, about their capabilities, uh, and you draw some attention to that. Uh, or, I mean, there was attention on you because of that. Yeah. Um, why take that approach? Is that is that putting a target on your own back? Uh, probably. And so, look, I, I don't think anybody's above critique or approach. And so I'm happy to have anybody try to critique me um, in any of my statements and actions. Why I, I think you're alluding to my response on Twitter to my uh, keynote, what I kind of pushed back on is there were people that weren't in my talk that were then tweeting at me about their opinions of what they perceived to be my stance. And mm. so first I was saying, hey guys, watch the video or, or watch the talk before you come at me. And number two, right. you know, I, and I don't mean this in any arrogant way, I don't mean this to be braggadocious, I don't mean this to be a jerk. 
but I have been on the offense for this this country. I have been on the defense. I've built the ICS threat discovery mission for the for the government. I run the largest ICS security company in the world right now uh, over at Dragos. I'm not saying I'm right, but I think I have experience enough to make the statements that I make. And uh, for people to be like, Rob, it's it's bad that you're poking the adversary, guys. I've been there, done that. You may not agree with me, but. I'm precise with my words and I know what I'm saying. And so why did I say that, right? At the end of the talk, I, I put down the adversary. Why? To me, this community, and I love them to death and there's plenty of reasons to do it, don't get me wrong, but this community builds up adversaries to almost hero worship, to a fact, to a, to a side for me that feels disgusting. We are so happy to talk about, oh, this is the most sophisticated group and, oh, these people were amazing. Did you look at this cool hack that they pulled off? Or let's memorialize them with statues at RSA for the various threat groups that they represent and all this crap. And it's honestly kind of disgusting to me personally because having been on that side of the world and having been in the Intel community, I know for a fact many of the developers and operators of these campaigns just absolutely revel in that. It's, it's a glorification. Mm. It's a, hey, did you see the latest report? They were writing about our team. Look how great and wonderful we are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my intent uh, was to kind of return a little bit of normalcy and say, you know what? As a member of the industrial community, out to the adversaries here, I just wanted to let you know, we don't think you're clever. We don't think you're cool. You're going after civilian targets and civilian people. And you should feel bad. You should be fired for your incompetent approach to this. And, and I think they ought to be reminded every now and then that they're not as important or as cool as people make them out to be. They are jerks trying to hurt people. And in any world, in any country, in any reality, I hope all of us can agree that civilians should be off limits. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Today's Learning Lab, we have Mark Urban and Jackson Evans-Davies. Mark, welcome. Hope you're doing well. How about you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, Dave. Thanks. Yes, I'm Mark Urban, Vice President of uh, Product and Industry Market Strategy here at Dragos. 20 years in cyber across a number of different areas and have worked a lot with CISOs and architects to look at the architecture of their environments to make it more secure. Hi, Dave. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me as well. My name is Jackson Evans-Davies. I'm a principal penetration tester with Dragos, and today we're going to be talking about securing uh, an industrial environment uh, from a high-level perspective. Now, Jackson, we've talked a lot about this subject, and you know, I, I think when we look at connectivity into the industrial side of an organization, uh, that can be very problematic. What are the things that drive you know people wanting to connect into the industrial side of an environment? Yeah, Mark, I think that's great. Uh, a great question. Uh, a couple of things we see are third-party vendors needing access into the environment to fine-tune their equipment. And the other would be the asset owners and operators themselves. They would need access into, uh, you know, monitor and, you know, fine-tune it as well. And we've seen an increase of that since the start of COVID about two years ago with everyone, everyone working from home organizations created remote access solutions. Some were secure, 
Some were not. And over the last couple of years, they've slowly started to secure those environments. And it's something that, you know, we see continue going forward and organizations kind of need to get on board with, you know, defending that remote architecture. So by remote access, we're talking about VPNs and other secure access, you know, quote unquote, secure access technologies that, you know, whether you're it's within the organization coming from home or whether it's a third party supply chain vendor coming into the environment uh, that's VPN, secure access. What are the right ways to architect that remote access environment at a high level? I think what we need to look for when we're talking remote access or VPN connections, like you mentioned, into the industrial environment is really break it down from what the Purdue model shows us. The Purdue model shows us level four being corporate, level 3.5 being the DMZ, level three, two, and one being the industrial or OT process underneath it. So the way we'd like organizations to create remote access into the OT environment, whether it's themselves or third parties, is come in through corporate level four VPN connectivity or RDP connections, uh, and then down into the DMZ environment, and then down again into the OT environment. All of that using multi-factor authentication at two locations between IT and OT, and then OT and down below into the ICS environment, and also using different sets of credentials uh, at each level as well. It adds a wealth of sophistication to an environment. So you're saying that you want you want a DMZ sandwich, so to speak. You've got the kind of the 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 IT environment where people kind of come in. Then over uh, in another area, you have the OT, the industrial kind of firewall access, and in between those, uh, what what goes in between those two uh, those two firewall uh, DMZs? Yeah, so that's what we call the DMZ level it's, as itself. And in the DMZ environment, we often see, you know, a series of connections coming in. Often a jump host is configured in there. There's domain controllers because we want a separate domain in the DMZ as well, not a, uh, a DMZ or a domain span of the corporate or a domain span of the OT environment. We want an isolated domain in the DMZ. And then we also see, you know, in the industrial side, of the DMZ, we see Pi connections coming up. We see historians in the DMZ as well um, to be able to push that data up to corporate environment. So the DMZ is kind of a combination of both assets, corporate and OT, and that allows us to segment that those communication paths. Uh, you know, as we can consider it almost a waterfall: corporate to DMZ, and then DMZ to OT, and then vice versa going back up. So coming in VPN into the OT, or I'm sorry, into the IT DMC, and then you're looking at there are ways to think through domain strategies, there are specific hosts or jump hosts to segment, and then there are access policies that you can have, including multi-factor authentication. But you also talked about there's some advanced things that you can do with, uh, you know, just segmenting networks and IP spaces by vendor. Can you talk a little bit about uh, at a high level what that looks like? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one thing we could do. You mentioned the jump host being a pivot point in the in and out of the environment. It's how everyone would get, you know, from IT to OT is through that DMZ jump host. You know, that includes asset owners and third parties, you know, and t- taking the architecture a step further, we could have two separate jump hosts, one for internal employees and then one for third party vendor employees. That way, credentials are not being joined together within one asset because an adversary will look for hashes or credentials 
on a specific machine if they get local administrator. And if both vendor and internal share one jump post, they would get access to all the credentials on that one machine. So isolating those two jump posts could allow us to limit an attack to one specific area and not compromise the other. Now, when, when we were setting up, when we were discussing this this subject and, and you were talking about your day-to-day being a pen tester, what what are those engagements look like? I mean, where 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 do you go to in these environments? What what's the best kind of uh, cookie jar that you like to raid? Yeah, I, I think I think that really depends on the environment. You know, we start the penetration test from a white box perspective, so we understand that the subnets, we understand the domain, we understand the IP addresses that we that are in scope that we can target. But we're looking for misconfigurations that we off, that are often seen in ICS environments, and that was kind of shown through the you know the Dragos year in review. Uh, network segmentation and domain segmentation are really big ones. Uh, those are often spanned across the environments, and we often see two-way trusts. Uh, and then one other thing we're looking for often in a penetration test are you know files that uh, users leave behind. You know whether it's on the jump host where. I mentioned people pivot in and out of the environment. Folks usually like to copy files to it to then copy files you know, from it. So if we can get access to a jump post that's not secure, secured or hardened by GPO, uh, we often go there to pull uh, sensitive documentation and that allows us to get a better understanding of the environment uh, there as well. So DMZ sandwiches, uh, proper VPN access controls, uh, jump hosts, uh, good access control list, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of good approaches to secure connectivity into the industrial side of it. Hard to keep track of here. Uh, if you look in the show notes, there will actually be a link to a more detailed blog that even has kind of a one one picture summary of what we talked about here that you can hand off to your network architecture. You can evaluate yourself. Jackson, any kind of last thoughts on, you know, the, like, the keys to securing this environment? I think the biggest thing that, you know, I could touch on quick is uh, defending the ITOT perimeter, uh, that firewall or that perimeter control between your corporate and the DMZ. In my opinion, that's the key to the, the industrial environment. If we limit data flows to and from the corporate environment to the DMZ, if we limit remote access to only those who need it, and we we define where they can go with unique credentials and MFA, limiting file copy between corporate and DMZ. I think those are all things that we can look at as as securing that perimeter. And that's typically how an adversary will come in is from corporate down. And that will really go a long way with defending your environment. Jackson, that's awesome. Uh, because, you know, as we see that, the you know, a lot of those persistent VPN connections into you know, into that 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 IT area are the starting point for most industrial intrusions. So, very helpful. Uh, that's great stuff. And Dave, uh, we bring it back to you. That's Mark Urban and Jackson Evans Davies. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Rash and Mark Urban. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.